take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Welcome to Nurses Out Loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Nurse Michelle. You can join us weekdays with a different nurse host daily. All of my shows go to podcasts. Typically a day or two after the broadcast is heard on talk radio. You can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. Last week on Nurses Out Loud, we addressed 15 of the 20 vaccine answers to the 20 vaccine questions for medical professionals. There's a lot of content to share with you all, and I want to be thorough and inspire you to dig deeper, but one hour was just not enough to do all 20 last week. When we are done today, you will have three posts you can save and add to your arsenal to share with those in your community who have either attempted to disparage you for choosing not to get the COVID vaccine or because you are deciding not to follow the CDC vaccine schedule for children. If you have a social media platform, I challenge you to take those links and add them to stories with the links attached. You can also go to the Nurses Out Loud Instagram page where you will have content that you can share regarding each of our weekly posts. You can make a difference just by sharing knowledge. We all need to do our part. There is so much happening in our country since 2020, more than just a virus struck the USA. It's almost like there was an agenda to turn our country literally upside down. Nurses Out Loud is doing our part to expose what has been happening to our society as it affects the medical community and the impact on the American public. But there are so many other shows on America Out Loud discussing the impact on our society. I've always been a big talk radio fan myself and as well as my grandparents and my parents all loved Rush Limbaugh. I personally have felt the void in the airspace since his passing until I found America Out Loud talk radio. Now, Rush is irreplaceable. We all know that. But there are so many brave Americans striving to talk to the people through talk radio. So be sure to make americaoutloud.com your daily stop for all the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, the podcasts, and the videos so we all can help secure America's future. So this week, I am providing the last five answers to those 20 vaccine questions. You can go to my show page at americaoutloud.com backslash nurses out loud and click on the nurse Michelle image. And there you will find the first 15 answers to vaccine questions for medical professionals. So let's jump in. We skipped um, number 13 last week. So we will start right there. 
Number 13, measles vaccine. Do you know what year the measles vaccine was introduced to the U.S. population and what the mortality rate for measles was just prior to the vaccine being given to American children? And do you know what the mortality rate was for measles at that time of its launch versus the present day mortality rate from measles today. Now, if you recall the challenge at the beginning of this challenge for medical professionals, if you're a new medical professional listening, all of these questions that are being asked, you must know the answers off the top of your head, especially especially if you're anti, anti-vaxxers. So if you're against the people who are out there saying that they have a question about some of the vaccines and you want to call them an anti-vaxxers, and assume that they are among the ignorant population and you're a medical professional, you don't get to Google any answer. So if you're hearing this question for the first time, you're lucky enough to be hearing the answer at the same time. But the challenge is that you know the answer already. So first of all, the vaccine was introduced in 1963. Now, interestingly, um, the CDC has updated um, their site in the last couple of years regarding the history of measles and the vaccine. So I'm going to first give you the data they originally had that you have a really hard time finding now. Um, and then I'll give you the newest numbers. So in 1900, the mortality rate for measles was 13.1 in 100,000 uh, people that had um, COVID, uh, not COVID, I'm sorry, measles. In 1940, the mortality rate had decreased to 0.5 in 100,000. And that's most certainly attributed to the improvements in sanitation, sewage, public water sources, and something we all take for granted called refrigeration. uh, So by 1960, the mortality rate for measles was 0.2 in 100,000. And the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963. So the CDC documents the mortality rate of measles between 1985 and 1992, meaning the number of people who still die in America from measles, even though we have a measles vaccine, to be 0.2% in 100,000. So that's identical to what it was before the the, um, measles vaccine came out. So the mortality rate for measles did not improve because of the introduction of the measles vaccine. The measles mortality rate had already declined. Now, I'm going to give you their updated history from their site of the history of measles. You can find this citation in my show notes. So their updated history states, in the decade before the live measles vaccine was licensed in 1963, an average of 549,000 measles cases occurred with 495 measles deaths reported annually in the United States. That is a mortality rate of 0.0009%. So even lower chance of death than previously stated on their website. However, it is likely they go on to say that on average, there was more like three three to four million people actually infected with measles annually. Most cases were not reported. Sound familiar? On the reported cases, approximately 48,000 people were hospitalized for measles and 1,000 people developed chronic disability from acute encephalitis caused by measles. Now, they don't correct their number of dead. So the 4 million cases that they correct themselves to um, still has only 495 deaths noted, and that reduces the mortality rate. So before the vaccine is introduced, the mortality rate is actually 0.0001. 
2%, okay? But they remind you that they there were this 1,000 chronically disabled kids out of that 4 million who end up with you know this um, damage to their brain. And that's the kind of stuff that sticks out when a parent is skimming the history of vaccines. Nobody wants their kid to be va- disabled after all, right? So a lot of people may stop right there and say, I don't want my child disabled. All I know is that sounds like a lot of kids that are disabled and I don't want it to be my child. So per the CDC website, they let us know that in the history of the measles, measles was declared eliminated from the United States. And that means that a region or country for 12 months or longer did not have any um, measles virus transmission. However, measles cases and outbreaks still occur every year in the United States, they remind us, because measles is still commonly transmitted in many parts of the world, including Europe, Middle East, Asia, Americas, and Africa. Now, since 2000, when measles was declared eliminated from the U.S., the annual number of cases ranged from about 37 cases in 2004 to as high as 1,200 cases in 2019. And that's well after the measles vaccine is on the scene. The CDC reminds us that the majority of cases in the United States that keep coming here are um, either among the people who are not vaccinated due to people coming here called importations by people who were infected while in other countries of subsequent transmission. So in other words, other countries are exposing people in our country to the virus and therefore we're having outbreaks. Now, remember, the CDC doesn't declare that this vaccine is 100% effective at keeping you from getting measles. So um, it can be anywhere from 96% to 97%. I think it's 94 to 97% effective. So you have somebody that's importing measles here to this country. It doesn't matter whether you're among the unvaccinated or you're the vaccinated. There's a percentage chance that you could get measles if it's imported here to America. Historically, virtually everyone experienced measles illness during childhood, gaining lifelong immunity, providing by, you know, giving them natural infection, they got the natural infection, not to mention the immune benefits they had by actually having the disease. That's why people who are born before 1958, who actually had the measles, are declared by the CDC to have lifelong immunity. And those of us who had chickenpox as children like myself are not recommended to ever receive the varicella chickenpox vaccine because we also have natural immunity. So because there are still outbreaks in America, if you, I do know people who have had measles and that in this present era, and I would tell you that make sure as a healthcare provider, you know, you're going to make sure you draw a serum sample and a throat swab to make sure that you've confirmed that this is actually measles, but there's also urine samples that can contain the virus as well. And it's also something to advise to do, but as a, a family member, if you are a person that ever comes down with measles or a family member of yours does, you need to request a molecular analysis to be done to determine the genotype of the measles virus, because this is what um, helps determine the path, the the transmission pathways of the measles virus. And it helps detect which ones are imported and which ones are actually wild type virus. And you'll be surprised to learn that in, if you deep, d- dig deep, that the majority of outbreaks in our country are not only from imported, but they're vaccine-derived versions of the virus, not wild-type measles like our grandparents had. So measles is caused by a single-stranded enveloped RNA virus with one serotype. Humans are the only natural host of the virus. 
CDC documents that the way that you can determine if you're immune or not is by documentation that you've had one or more doses before the age of two or two doses um, in school-aged children before a certain age. You've had lab work done that proves that you are immune or you were born before 1957 or somebody's actually done a diagnostic test and it's been documented that you've actually had uh, measles. Now, when you read through this history, it's going to tell you how measles can be prevented with measles containing vaccines. And this is the history. And that is what it's majorly focusing on is that you get your vaccine to prevent measles. One dose is 93% effective, supposedly, and two doses are approximately 97% effective. Now, when you get to the part on their history about post-exposure prophylaxis, now this will be linked in my show notes, you'll be surprised that if you're exposed to measles who cannot readily show that they have immunity, you've been exposed to it and you don't know that you have immunity. And if you were to go to your pediatrician or doctor, they may find that this documentation I'm about to say to you is what they recommend to you. And they say that you should have, if you've been around susceptible and you're susceptible and you're not immune and you've been around people who knowingly have measles, they want you to administer the MMR vaccine within 72 hours of initial measles exposure or an immune globulin within six days of exposure. Do not administer MMR vaccine and Ig um, immune globulin simultaneously as this practice invalidates the vaccine. Now, when you hear in a moment what the treatment is for measles, it's going to be astounding to you to think that your little person who now got just exposed to somebody with measles needs to suddenly be recommended to get an MMR shot or which is not just measles, it's measles, mumps and rubella because there is no longer just a measles shot for you or go get an infusion of immune globulin. I have a child who has to have immune globulin infusions. Let me tell you, there's a lot of risk with immune globulin infusions. So healthcare providers caring for a measles patient are guided to uh, make sure that the infected person is isolated for four days after they develop a rash and they're told to practice airborne precautions. And the reason why they say that, that you should use airborne precautions in a healthcare setting is because of the possibility, they say, albeit low, of MMR vaccine failure in healthcare providers exposed to infected patients that the um, healthcare providers should all observe airborne precautions in caring for patients with measles. The preferred placement of patients who require airborne precautions is in a single patient airborne infection isolation room, regardless of presumptive immunity status. All healthcare staff in entering the room should use respiratory protection consistent with airborne infection control precautions using an N95 respirator or a respirator with similar effectiveness in preventing airborne transmission. So even though your job may have required you to have an MMR vaccine, even though you know you have MMR um, immunity, even no matter what, you're going to have to use airborne precautions because of potential vaccine failure. So here we go with the treatment for measles. Okay, so you've made sure that your child got vaccinated. You did not want them to end up with encephalitis. You're so worried about these risks associated to this disease. And I just told you how few children even died of measles before there was even a vaccine. But when you hear the treatment, it's just going to blow you away. There is no specific antiviral therapy for measles. Medical care is supportive 
about the symptoms and any complications with little infections that may start inside the rashes. Severe measles cases among children, such as those who are hospitalized, should be treated with vitamin A. Vitamin A should be administered immediately on diagnosis and repeated the next day. The recommended age-specific daily doses are 50,000 IUs for infants younger than six months, 100,000 IUs for children six to 11 months, and 200,000 IUs for children 12 months of age and older. So I'm going to give you a quick review of what vitamin A actually is. It is a, it's also known as retinol. It is a fat-soluble vitamin traditionally associated with vision and eye health. Vision, uh, vitamin A is a source for healthy vision. And without vitamin A, a person could experience vision problems and possibly even vision loss and uh, present in foods that contain fats. So people who are um, eating foods that are mostly vegetables and not eating a lot of meat products are going to have less vitamin A in their diet. Vitamin A is not a single vitamin, but a collection of compounds known as retinoids and retinoids occur naturally in the human body. Uh, but they're present in dietary sources. So in the families that are out there trying to make sure you have a healthy diet that has like fish liver, beef liver, cheese, milk, dairy products, beta carotene foods, sweet potato, kale, spinach, green leafy vegetables, carrots, cantaloupe, black eyed peas, and fortified breakfasts, breakfast cereals are getting your daily um, vitamin A needs met. If you're pregnant, you are taking a prenatal vitamin that's making sure you have enough and not too much of vitamin A. So this is what I want to say to you is that like if you were to go to Nurse Michelle's Amazon store, I'll put a link to it in my bio, you'll see that you could get a handy dandy bag of vitamin A soft gels, okay? And the soft gels that I have are 25,000 I use in a soft gel. I'm going to shake the bag. 25,000 per soft gel, okay? So that means that if your child comes down with measles, you need to give your child eight vitamin A soft gels for two days as treatment for measles. Any American and medical professional can go to the National Library of Medicine, discover how to use vitamin A in the treatment of measles. Measles, it, even though it's the leading cause of childhood morbidity and mortality, vitamin A deficiency is recognized risk factor for severe measles. The World Health Organization recommends administration of an oral dose of 200,000 IUs of vitamin A in 100,000 for infants. Um, per day for two days to children with measles in areas where vitamin A deficiency may be present. Now we're in America. We're not in one of those places where predominantly we're having um, third world problems with nutrition deficits. So 200,000 IUs of vitamin per day given in an oil-based formulation in areas where there is a risk of, you know, fatality supposedly because of their diet reduces the mortality in children. And I'll drop some citations for you of where there are wonderful studies out there to understand that simply taking eight 25,000 IU soft gels a day for two days literally reduces the risk of overall mortality and pneumonia risk mortality, especially in children under two. So under, do you see how simply this disease could be treated if it ever were to come to your family? I assure you this nurse and no nurse I ever met and no doctor I ever met knew this before it was discovered 
on every on research trying to find out why is it so important that my child had this measles vaccine only to discover how simply it could be treated so moving past question number um 14 and 15, because we did that last week, I'm going to number 16 now. So of all the number of vaccine injuries that occur annually, what percentage of those vaccine injuries do you believe actually get reported? And how has that percentage been arrived at? So the first question is this, is there a place where vaccine injuries are documented? And you can go back to question number seven, taught that where I taught you about V-A-E-R-S. Interestingly, this last two years has shown us that the fact checkers don't like the VAERS system at all. When you dare to bring up the VAERS system, they don't like it when anti-vaxxers mention the government institution and start trying to quote data from it. Here is a recent, um, there's an article out that says, don't fall for the VAERS scare tactic. Anti-vaxxers show how a precious vaccine adverse event reporting database can be used to scare the public. So I'll drop the link to this um, hit on anti-vaxxers in my show notes, but it pretty much wraps up the sentiment of so many other articles that are hit pieces of name callers who use ad hominem attacks to try and shut down the opposing view. The article will be left in the show notes for you. Read it and weep. The entire goal of the article is to appear to say that, you know, VAERS is only something to be used by the qualified and intelligent, uh, which they deduct the anti-vaxxers simply cannot be. Um, what this report fails to mention is the HHS studies done that were paid for by the CDC and NIH to assess just how good was VAERS doing at capturing adverse vaccine events and deaths following childhood vaccines. The result of that study, um, I'll drop in the show notes as well, was from 2007 and two through 2010. Um, and there's two other additional studies that are as recent as 2015 that HHS paid for to have done to assess their government system called VAERS. And it showed that VAERS was only one capturing only 1% of vaccine injuries and implying that that only 1% were actually getting reported. And it's no surprise to someone like myself um, that knows that physicians aren't aware that they know need to do it. They're not doing it. It's underreporting. So even the numbers that they're wanting to scoff at us about how irrelevant they are, that is a 1% of what is actually happening. And you can check that citation in the show notes. Additionally, hit pieces like this fail to note that it is a federal crime to make a false VAERS report. And you can find that citation in my December 15th show notes, where it's noted that you you could go to jail. It's a federal offense to, to put a false report out there. So this author, like so many others before and after that hopefully will stop continuing to do what they're doing, um, they have to contend with the facts that the VAERS data must be a representation of injuries, in fact, that did happen and did get reported, but they only represent 1% of the actual numbers. And perhaps if authors like this instead spent their effort on validating suffering of citizens and demanding those that are being reported to, meaning theirs, how about the um, journalists demand from the authorities that they publicly address the VAERS data individually without names to let the public know that there are, in fact, injured Americans. Why is this not happening? 
for whatever reason, it just continues to be disparage the anti-vaxxers and just resort to the ad hominem attacks. But I wonder if the name callers and fact checkers will study the newly released V-safe data from the CDC. It took two lawsuits and months of litigation for the Informed Consent Action Network's legal team headed by their lawyer, Aaron Siri, to obtain data that is rightfully the American public's freedom of access of this information. The Informed Consent Action Network got over 144 million rows of health entry data from approximately 10 million users of the CDC's vSafe app. And the Informed Consent Action Network is encouraging the public to review this data by going to the ICANN's new vSafe dashboard available at icandecide.org backslash v-safe. So I will link that in my show notes as well. And I would love to um, watch as these fact checkers who've wanted to disparage that all these COVID vaccinated people don't even exist. They want to disparage that these childhood vaccinating injuries do not exist. I want to hear what they had to say about the V-safe data. Moving on to number 17. Did you know there is a list of Americans that are contraindicated to receive vaccines? And do you know where that list is and what kind of Americans and medical conditions that would contraindicate receiving a vaccine? Now, I'm just going to list a few, read a few lines from the CDC website just to briefly inform you that the CDC states there is a population in this country who they, the CDC, contraindicate receive vaccines, which would make the CDC the ones creating a portion of the population of those known as the infamous anti-vaxxers. Um, there's a table on this page as well. You'll find it in the show notes. Um, be sure to read it and be sure to read all the fine print. If you're going to dig into this, read the fine print at the bottom of these tables. Okay, so this is what the CDC says about those who are supposed to be anti-vaxxers. National standards for pediatric vaccination practices have been established and include descriptions of valid contraindications and precautions to vaccination. And persons who administer vaccines should screen patients for contraindications and precautions to the vaccine before they administer each dose. And then they go on to list people like the severely compromised and uh, other people that are not so severely compromised who are not supposed to be getting vaccines. So get familiar with it. But uh, if you followed me on my other, my story from December 11th, you will know that my daughter did not have a severe immune deficiency and yet she had a severe vaccine reaction. Before we go to break, I want to mention one of the show's wonderful sponsors, Clear. I call it Xlear so my followers know what I am talking about because the X is silent. For those who've been following me for the last two years, you know I help you set up your COVID preparedness basket so you are ready. Clear is on that list of recommendations, and it is my favorite product for ages 0 to 11. It helps ensure that that age group easily can fulfill the need to cleanse their noses and slow viral replication at the source where COVID and flu and RSV start in the nasopharynx. If you need help building your COVID preparedness basket, the link to my IG is under my bio. Now, when we come back, we will go to the next question. It's time in this world. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. 
No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Nurses Out Loud is so thankful for all of you. Please be sure to follow Nurses Out Loud on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, each of us have our own private Instagram and Twitter pages and websites. So check out our bios and give us a follow. Now on to question number 18. For medical professionals just joining us, all these questions are for you. And for the rest of us, it's for digging in and researching. But for medical professionals, especially those who do not believe that anti-vaxxers have a clue about what they're talking about, you better know the answers to these questions right off the top of your head. Number 18, are you aware of what the name of the vaccine is that is mandated to be given on the first day of birth? For all American children, what is the name of that vaccine and why is it mandated to be given on the first day of life? And what was the original reason this vaccine was created? And what do you believe is the source and citation for randomized controlled trials that support administering this medication biologic to newborn babies on the first day of life? The CDC states all babies should get the first shot of hepatitis B vaccine within 24 hours of birth. 
They say this shot reduces the risk of your baby getting the disease from you or family members who may not know they are infected with hepatitis B. You know how new moms will take their tour of the labor and delivery suite right before they're getting ready to have their baby. I was walking through the labor and delivery suite touring with one of my daughters. And when we came to the room where they were going over to where the baby bed was, where they were going to bring the baby to, the nurse says to all of the young couples standing there, and this is where your baby will be warmed. And this is where we're going to give your baby their very first vaccine. They'll be getting the hepatitis B vaccine right here. And she said it just like she was Vanna White talking about winning a car. And there were probably 15 family members in that room. And all of them stood there like stoic um, little children in a preschool and just nodded their head stoically like, yes, master, whatever you say, master. And my daughter, who is the vaccine injured daughter who was pregnant in this tour with me, literally poked me and said, mom, you have to tell them they don't have to do it. And so I interjected, but you do not have to say yes to that vaccine. It is not required and you can say no. And that nurse literally went ballistic and thought she was going to lose her uh, life after I said that and just went after me. But I did get it said, and it is a truth. You can say no to anything. Now, the CDC goes on to say, if you have hepatitis B, your baby should get the first shot of hepatitis vaccine within 12 hours of birth instead of the regular within 24 hours of birth. And they let you know that there's also this immune globulin that you can give also, and they hope it's going to give your baby extra help to fight off the virus, assuming that you were positive. So for moms who are actually positive, they want the baby to have it within 12 hours. But for the rest of the population that are not positive, they want the baby to have it within 24 hours. Also, the American College of Gynecology and Obstetrics also recommends that doctors test pregnant women for hepatitis B and C during pregnancy. And this screening has been happening since 1988. The reason they've been doing this is because it's part of their hepatitis B elimination strategy in the United States and its territories. Now, the CDC wants universal testing because they believe it's going to catch the most cases. And they say that when we only test those who have risk factors, we miss a lot of people who have an infection. It's better to screen everyone regardless of risk factors. And they recommend that you do it before you're pregnant. Don't even get pregnant until you know if you're hepatitis B or C positive, but that's not enough. So once you get pregnant, even if you know that you weren't positive before you got pregnant, they want you screened during pregnancy. And even though you tested negative during pregnancy, it's not enough. Your baby still needs a hepatitis B vaccine just in case within the week or so since you last had the test, you may have been positive for hepatitis B. Now, there are going to be women who are going to test positive, and if the blood test shows positive, there's a good chance of transmission to the baby. The WHO currently recommends universal Im immunization of infants with at least three doses of hepatitis B vaccine, and the first dose of hepatitis B, B vaccine, they also say, should be given within 24 hours of birth. So how is hep be spread. It is spread through contact, through body fluids from an infected person, blood, semen, saliva, but not through kissing and through birth. And in the United States, 0.2% 
to 6% of mothers are actually even affected by um, infected with hepatitis B. So it's a pretty small population of mothers who even are infected with hepatitis B. Who are the risk populations? Well, if you're an IV drug abuser, if you have high risk sexual encounters with strangers and multiple partners, if you're a healthcare worker who comes in contact with body fluids, if you have HIV or AIDS patient, if you're an HIV or AIDS patient, or if you get blood transfusions, you're at a higher risk of hepatitis B. Um, if you have sex with men who have sex with men, that also puts you at a higher risk of getting hepatitis B as well. So of all the cases that occur in the U.S., less than 1% of those cases occur in people younger than 15, and it's even less common in babies and toddlers. Little people rarely get this disease, and in a population of ages 0 to 34, in 2019, there was 0.03 per 100,000 people who actually got hepatitis B. According to the Hepatitis B Foundation, the hepatitis B virus was discovered in 1965, and four years after discovering it, the first Hep B vaccine was developed. In 1981, the FDA approved a more sophisticated plasma-derived hepatitis B vaccine, but it had to be discontinued in 1990 because you could get Hep B from the vax, had blood products in it. In 1986, a second-generation genetically engineered DNA recombinant version of it was brought forward, and these new approved vaccines are synthetically prepared and do not contain blood products. Isn't that nice to know? But let's step back uh, in history a little bit. So back in March of 79, there was a trial started for the hepatitis v vaccine, and the study was conducted in five large cities, and it indicated that sexually transmitted hepatitis B infections were far more common among homosexual men than was previously suspe suspected. Other studies were done, but in 1989, because homosexual the homosexual male population was at such an increased risk of infection with hepatitis B, a viral a virus study for a vaccination for hep B um, was began in that population as well. And I'm going to drop a worthy read in the show notes of a 2011 publication in the Journal of Medical Humanities that's entitled, Do We Really Need Hepatitis B on the Second Day of Life? Vaccination Mandates and Shifting Representations of Hepatitis B. I'm going to give you just a little bit from this article, but it's a worthy read. In the decade following hepatitis B vaccines in 1981's approval, U.S. health officials issued evolving guidelines on who should receive the vaccine. First, gay men, then injection drug users and healthcare workers. Later, it became hepatitis B positive women's children, and later still, it became all newborns. State laws that mandated the vaccine for all children were quietly accepted in the 1990s in the um in the, in the 2000s however popular anti-vaccine sent sentiment targeted the shot as an emblem of immunization policy excesses you can count on those anti-vaxxers. Shifting attitudes toward the vaccine in this period were informed by hepatitis B's changing popular image 
legible in the textural and visual representations of the infection from the 1980s through the 1990s. Notably, the outbreak of AIDS, the advent of genetically engineered pharmaceuticals, and democratic push for health reform shaped and reshaped hepatitis B's public image. Hepatitis B thus became, in turn, an AIDS-like scourge. Proof of a new era of pharmaceuticals, a threat from which all American children had a right to be protected and a cancer-causing infection spread by teenage lifestyles. The metamorphosis of the infection's image was reflected in evolving policy recommendations regarding who should receive the vaccine in the 1980s and was key to securing broad uptake of the hepatitis B vaccine in the 1990s. So the hepatitis B vaccine has been part of the childhood vaccine schedule since the ni- since 1994. And if you have a, but just so you know, if you've ever had a hepatitis B infection and you've recovered from a past hepatitis B infection, the hepatitis vaccine series does not benefit you um, or even clear the virus. You already have immunity if you've already recovered from the disease. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons um, state, for most children, the risk of serious vaccine reaction from the hepatitis B vaccine may be 100 times greater than the risk of actually getting hepatitis B. In nearly 20% of the vaccine adverse event reporting reports, the first eight listed side effects suggest central nervous system involvement. That's pretty serious. Um, Just for the record, Merck makes over 1 billion yearly on hepatitis B vaccines, most of which are given to infants and also our federal agencies. The majority of people who are um, infected as adults recover from the acute illness and they become immune to the hep B vaccine, as we mentioned just a moment ago. So the reason why I wanted to focus so much on this particular vaccine is because our public health authorities believe that a brand new newborn baby, just as soon as it pops out of the womb, is to receive a vaccine that is that was originally created for high-risk populations who had hypersexual um, tendencies with large, large populations of people, or specifically men having sex with men. So we know that men do not have children even though um, the news is trying to make our generation believe otherwise. So women with um, the ability to birth children have children. And the only way a woman would have hepatitis B is if she's in one of the high risk um, fat categories. And we've already mentioned that. And she is tested pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy, right before she's delivered to find out if she's hep B positive. So if she's not hep B positive, You can't have hep B and you can't give it to your child. Likewise, a baby can be tested for hepatitis B. So if your mother did not get tested for hepatitis B and you're a newborn baby and the mother had no prenatal care, the medical facility can actually test the baby as well. And there is treatment for hepatitis B in the event that it happens. And there is the ability to recover from the disease and gain natural immunity. So It's worthy to be recognized that a vaccine is being pushed on American population on the first day of birth, and that vaccine looks like it has 
reasons to question whether or not it belongs inside a brand new infant's body. So I'm going to drop a lot of uh, resources for you in the show notes for you to dig deeper, but that was a lot for you to just get a taste of our public health guidelines that are happening for American children while everybody else that's an adult and then not having children isn't really paying attention to and just saying, yeah, all these people need to make sure they're vaccinating their kids because I don't want hepatitis B. Well, you're not going to get hepatitis B from somebody else's baby. Anyways, you're very likely going to get it from your lifestyle choices, or if you work inside of a healthcare setting and you are in a situation where you might be punctured by a, an, an instrument that has blood on it from a high risk individual. Okay, let's move on to question number 19. Are you able to locate, as a medical professional, the randomized controlled trials where the vaccinated children of America are compared to the unvaccinated children of America? Were the studies using evidence-based medicine using the gold standard randomized controlled trials to successfully show that there is a significant health benefit for the vaccinated children versus the unvaccinated children? And as a medical professional, if a parent were to request and ask you a question, can you put your hands on that data immediately to reassure them that the benefits of getting your children vaccinated do in fact outweigh the risks of not getting the vaccines? I would encourage any of my listeners out there, especially if you are doubting Thomas, who think surely I can find some some studies out there to show Nurse Michelle that she is wrong and what she's saying. Know that you can go to our show page on americaoutloud.com slash nursesoutloud and send an email to Nurse Michelle or any of the nurses, and you can drop whatever studies you found that you think um, differ with anything I'm saying to you. But as it pertains to, is there a uh, any studies out there for comparing the vaccinated to the unvaccinated children to whether or not the vaccinated children are healthier because they got their vaccines versus the unvaccinated that are supposedly less healthy? I have some sad news to tell you that that study does not exist. It's never been done. The CDC has never seen fit to do such a study. And it has been begged for by the informed anti-vax community saying the CDC has a sufficient number of data of all these unvaccinated children in the population. They know who they are. They could literally make a comparison study of all the different age groups and see how many children have all the different diagnoses that we know that children can come down with, whether it be autoimmune diseases, whether it be asthma or any other disorder that can happen with children and see which population actually has less medical problems. Um, So this generation is demanding that the public health authorities do exactly that and bring forward some studies and let's see those comparison studies and, you know, shut the anti-vaxxers up for sure by just simply showing us that all these vaccinated children have actually benefited and have less medical conditions than these unvaccinated. But sadly, right now, there is no studies for you to give to a parent, but you can go and find studies that say things like, 36% higher risk of asthma in some kids who had vaccine-related aluminum exposure. 
A federally funded study released in September of 22 reported a positive association between vaccine-related aluminum exposure and persistent asthma in children 24 to 59 months old. But the study's authors were careful to not suggest a causal relationship. Um, you can also find groundbreaking 2020 study that shows unvaccinated children are actually healthier than vaccinated children. And this study adds to a growing list of published peer-reviewed papers that compare the health of vaccinated children to the health of unvaccinated children. And these studies suggest we have long underestimated the scope of vaccine harms and that the epidemic of chronic illness in children is hardly a mystery. So I'll drop those studies for you and you can check them out. They'll be in my show notes as well. And we'll move on to the next question. So question number 20 is one that anyone who's anti the anti-vaxxers loves to bring up and it has to do with autism. So number 20, are you able to provide medical and scientific documentation with randomized controlled trials to answer the question whether or not vaccines have been proven that they do not cause autism. A brave doctor from years ago um, who published some very significant information on the autism correlation to vaccines, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, is one of the doctors that the people who want to disparage anti-vaxxers love to throw at that community to say that you're basically some Andrew Wakefield follower. Let me just let you hear what Wikipedia, not necessarily a credible source, has to say about Andrew Wakefield. Here are their words. And Dr. Andrew Jeremy Wakefield, a British anti-vaccine activist, former physician and discredited academic who was struck off the medical register for his involvement in the autism fraud in the Lancet, a 1998 study that falsely claimed a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Before you know it, the CDC website was loaded with information, making sure that the public knew that vaccines had absolutely nothing to do with autism and that vaccines do not cause autism. However, in a federal lawsuit that was filed by the Informed Consent Action Next Network, the Center for Disease Control has failed to produce scientific studies that back up its long-declared assertion that vaccines given to babies less than one year old do not cause autism. The CDC claims on its website that vaccines do not cause autism. Despite this claim, studies have found between 40% and 70% of parents with an autistic child continue to blame vaccines for their child's autism, typically pointing to vaccines given during the first six months of life. In the summer of 2019, the Informed Consent Action Network submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the CDC for all studies relied upon by the CDC to claim that the DTAP vaccine does not cause autism. Even after months of demands, the CDC refused to provide this information that is supposed to be provided to American citizens. Therefore, the Informed Consent Action Network was forced to sue the CDC in federal court, where the CDC finally entered into a stipulation signed by a federal court judge that made clear it cannot 
scientifically support its claim that these vaccines do not cause autism. And in this stipulation and court order, the CDC finally identified a total of 16 studies and four reviews, a review of studies on a given topic that it relies on to claim that the vaccines given to babies do not cause autism. And not one of these studies or reviews supports the claim that vaccines injected into babies, the DTAP, the Hep B, Hib, the PCV13, and the IPV do not cause autism. Instead, the studies that they provided, the court was one study concerning MMR, uh, not a vaccine that we had asked about, 13 studies concerning thimerosal, not an ingredient in any vaccine about which they had requested, three reviews and one study concerning both MMR and thimerosal, also nothing to do with the request, and one study concerning antigen, not vaccine, exposure, and one review concerning MMR, thimerosal, and DTAP. So only one of the studies or reviews listed by the CDC concerned a vaccine given to babies. And this was a 2012 review by the um, Journal of Medicine paid for by the CDC, which conducted a comprehensive review looking specifically for studies related to DTAP and autism. And the um, medicine, uh, the IOM concluded that it could not identify a single study to support that DTAP does not cause autism. Instead, the only relevant study that the IOM could identify found an association between DTAP and autism. Um, in other words, the only study identified by the CDC in the court-ordered stipulation that actually reviewed a vaccine given to babies with regard to autism found that there is nothing supporting the CDC's claim that vaccine does not cause autism. The most recent data from CDC reveals that one in 36 children born this year in the United States will have an autism diagnosis. Let that sink in. One in 36 children. This is a true epidemic. The CDC and health authorities have conducted a decades-long media campaign seeking to assure parents that vaccines do not cause autism. But making such statements without supporting studies is, at best, grossly irresponsible. Well, I'm going to stop there as it pertains to the questions. Um, it's taken us three episodes to go through all 20 questions. Needless to say, I have just touched the surface. My goal is to help you question the science. Science News asks, why is scientific questioning important? And their answer, the ability to ask well-defined, measurable questions makes it possible to explain phenomena of the natural world and design solutions to human problems. Science defined. The systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. Are there actually any thinking medical professionals out there who actually believe the science is settled on vaccines? Is it even scientific to declare vaccine science cannot be questioned? or that there is a singular authority on the subject of vaccines. No medical professional should ever be heard using the word misinformation. No, we should be telling our patients, educate before you vaccinate and let me help you. 
I've heard it said, it's not misinformation. It's just information you have missed. Um, If you don't already know who Dr. Peter McCullough is and you don't follow his talk radio show here on America Out Loud, The McCullough Report, you have missed out. Not only did he publish early treatment protocols in early 2020 that has saved thousands of people's lives, he has done 48 weekly updates for the American people throughout this pandemic. If you are a medical professional who has subscribed to the jargon misinformation and have tolerated censorship, I would like you to hear Dr. McCullough's words regarding misinformation. So Dr. McCullough's words um, are something that we all need to take into account. And honestly, if you're a medical professional, I believe you should memorize these words so that when you actually run into an ignorant medical professional who dares to use the word misinformation as it pertains to the medical sciences, you'll have something that may potentially stop them in their tracks and make them actually think like they need to do. So this is his quote for you to consider. There's no such thing as misinformation in the medical sciences. There's simply scientific data and two or more interpretive points of view. We cannot strip the civil liberties of right to free speech in medical discourse. It's necessary for progress. It's time to stop the censorship. Censorship destroys the scientific method and medical discourse. Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, that's a wrap for this week's show. Be sure to go to the Nurses Out Loud show page at americaoutloud.com backslash Nurses Out Loud and check out the links I share with you. Educate yourself and enjoy the empowerment of that knowledge. Most Americans, including our medical community, have no idea that under CDC guidance, today's American children between the ages of 0 and 18 have 69 to 72 antigens injected into them, thanks to the CDC pushing school vaccine requirements for compliance. And that is before the ACIP committee wins adding the new COVID vaccine to that already hefty vaccine schedule. Remember, you have a right to vaccine exemptions. No one can make you inject your child, and you cannot unvaccinate your child. If you have a pushy doctor, leave them. I will share a link in my show notes to medical providers who align with your values. Tune in to Nurses Out Loud daily, 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. We are six nurses not afraid to engage in this battle. We're putting out a bounty on the real misinformation and exposing the purveyors of propaganda. Like Florence Nightingale, we are shining a light in the darkness. We recognize that we are in a war for truth. It's time